Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, you speak to us in your word. You reveal yourself and your will to us because apart from you, we would be blind and we would go around life not knowing where to go or what to do. We wouldn't even know who we are. And so we pray that this morning we would hear words of life as we hear your loving instruction and call upon our lives. Uh, would you help us to see the good news of Jesus with clarity uh, as, we, as we look at this text and uh, consider what you are saying to us? We pray all of this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, if you've been with us or if you've not been with us, you may remember that we're in the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we've come to this text today in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, you might remember the situation. Paul was in the city of Thessalonica for a very short period of time, about you know, five or six weeks, most likely. And out of concern for this church and this group of new believers in Jesus in a city that has already demonstrated its hostility to the Christian faith as Paul and his companions were kicked out of the city, uh, Paul has sent Timothy to see how they are doing. And that's uh, what we kind of looked at the last couple weeks with uh, chapter 3 in 1 Thessalonians. Timothy has come back bringing good news of this church and how they're doing. And while it has largely been a very encouraging report, there are a few things that Paul wants to address and he wants to remind them of. So if you have the text in front of you, you'll notice this right at verses 1 and 2, where he says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So what seems likely from the instruction specifically in this text, and especially verse 6, if you look at verse 6 where Paul writes, and in that matter, or and in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. What is perhaps the case, what seems to be the case as scholars think about this, is that there's probably been at least one adulterous relationship that has happened in this church. It could be uh, a believer with another believer's wife or possibly uh, a believer with someone on the lower rung of the social order of that day, perhaps a household slave. And while we can't be sure of the exact situation, Paul takes this opportunity to clarify for the Thessalonian believers, for these new believers, what it looks like for them to follow Jesus in terms of sex. So that is going to be our focus and our topic this morning. How, how does Jesus and the good news of Jesus inform how we think about sex and sexuality? Now, I just want to say, like, right at the beginning, um, I don't assume that everyone who's here this morning or who may be listening this morning uh, necessarily is a Christian or even claims to be a Christian. And I hope that our church will be a church more and more where people who are asking questions and who are considering Jesus and what it means to know him and follow him, 
that they would come. And so I hope that this is a hospitable place to consider these things. I also don't assume that just because someone professes faith in Jesus that they've necessarily thought out all the implications of what the Bible says and what God tells us in his word. So here's what I want to do this morning. Um, I want to begin by considering our culture and the current confusion around sex. Then I want us to think about two questions. What does this text teach about sex? And then very importantly, why? Why it teaches this? And then finally, uh, to think about together, what is our hope and our power to change? So first, uh, our culture's confusion about sex. And by that, I really, I don't mean that as a dismissive sort of comment. I mean it as an observation. And specifically what I mean is, if you go back to the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day, sex and who you could or could not have sex with was based on the hierarchy of that society. It was, in the words of historian Tom Holland, quote, a sexual order rooted in the assumption that any man in a position of power had the right to exploit his inferiors, to use a slave or a prostitute to relieve his needs much as he might use a urinal. Or, uh, in the words of ancient Greek philosopher, uh, quote, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our purpose, persons, but wives to bear us legitimate children. In the ancient world, in other words, people didn't have individual rights. And it was very, it was ridiculous to the Greco-Roman world to think that everyone had equal dignity. I mean, you just look at the stratosphere of the social order, and that was clearly not true. And there, therefore, why would you treat persons of equal value? Why would you treat people as if everyone should be honored equally, uh, regardless of their social status, or any other way that you may demarcate the value of persons? And consent was not really a thing. It was Christianity that brought these values into the world. And this is what Tom Holland, uh, the historian that I just quoted, shows in his really remarkable book, Dominion, how the, Christian, how the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Holland himself is not a Christian. He's a self-identified agnostic. But he tells in this book the story of how Christianity revolutionized the world. And in telling this story, he also exposes the current uh, confusion that we experience as a culture around sex. So if we fast forward, and I know I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, but I have, you know, 30 minutes to try and uh, speak this morning. If we fast forward to the 1960s and the sexual revolution, there was, in a sense, attempt to shift away from Christianity and back to the sexual freedom of ancient Greece. And even some people, like, literally said that. But I want you to think about what happens, what happens when you take off constraints on sexuality? What happens when you encourage people to express their sexuality without any constraint and to just do that however they want? A couple problems flow from this. I'm just going to mention two. First, the problem of pornography. So this is from a Washington Post article from a few years with this title. Is porn immoral? That doesn't matter. It is a public health crisis. 
The article argues, quote, no matter what you think of pornography, whether it's harmful or harmless fan fantasy, after 40 years of peer-reviewed research, scholars can say with confidence that porn is an industrial product that shapes how we think about gender, sexuality, relationships, intimacy, sexual violence, and gender equality for the worse. The average age that a child is first exposed to pornography is around 11. By 90, 94% uh, of children uh, will see porn by the age of 14. This is what has been largely the instructor and former of imaginations around what sex is and what sex should look like and how it should be practice of kids and youth for the last 25 to 30 years. If you're of my age or even slightly older, I'll be 36 in about a month, and you grew up with the internet and a personal computer, you probably know this. So that's the first problem. The second problem of unconstrained sexuality, hashtag me too. Think about it, right? The sad irony of Harvey Weinstein and all the other men that were implicated in the Me Too movement is that these men were largely living out the sexual ethic of ancient Greece. I have power, I have status, I am above you, so I can use you however I want. Holland writes, quote, implicit in hashtag Me Too was the same call to sexual self-restraint that had reverberated throughout the church's history. Appetites that had been hailed by enthusiasts for sexual liberation stood condemned once again as predatory and violent. The human body was not an object, not a commodity to be used by the rich and powerful as, as when they pleased. But then Holland concludes and he makes this really insightful historical observation. Any condemnation of Christianity as repressive derives from a framework of values that is itself utterly Christian. That's what he's saying. So, so people in our culture, we may, we may want to move beyond or feel the pull to move beyond Christianity and what it teaches because we find it repressive or, or regressive or something like that, but yet our culture's belief in the value and the dignity of every single human person and the belief in the necessity of consent, these things come from Christianity. So we may want to be free from constraints and, and we think people should express their sexuality in whatever way makes them happy, but we also know from experience how unchecked desire is toxic and destructive. We see it in the studies around pornography. As a culture, we know we can't go back to ancient Greece that's where you get like Harvey Weinstein and that whole thing, but then where are we supposed to go? And what can we do when we have less and less shared beliefs about what a human being even is? And when we have such vastly different opinions and beliefs on what is actually good? How can we shape people to live together in a way that is beautiful when we have largely gotten rid of transcendent and universal values? We may not know it, but we are confused, and we're also hurt. And I don't want to minimize that, especially ta talking about a topic like this, that for many of us is very weighty. We are hurt. Many of us feel the weight of this. We feel perhaps regret or sadness or shame. 
And if we're going to hear this text rightly, we have to hear God calling us to true liberation and freedom to live as people made in his image, to live in a way that reflects the way we were created to live and to know him. So let's actually think about this passage. If you have it in front of you, we're going to unpack some of these verses. What does this passage teach about sex and why does it teach that? When Paul says in verse 3 that you should avoid sexual immorality, the term that he uses for sexual immorality in Greek is pornios. You can probably even kind of hear pornography in that word. This is a catch-all broad term for all types of sexual sin. By using this term, Paul means any kind of sexual activity that's outside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. This view of sex, rooted in creation, taught throughout the Old Testament, affirmed by Jesus and the rest of the New Testament writers. So Jesus himself uses this same term in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 when he is speaking about what really defiles you. And he says, it's what comes out of your hearts. It's things like evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. And there's that term again, pornios. Jesus was the first century Jewish rabbi. He didn't differ in his view of sexuality from what Paul says here. And Jesus, in one of his most famous teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, teaches that we break the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, every time we even look at another human being with a lustful intent. When I was in seminary, one of my counseling professors uh, compared sexual sin um, to an old-school video game. Just kind of follow me on this. That might seem not connecting at all. But if you know, like, those old-school Nintendo games, you know, like, kind of like the first level of the game, it's pretty, it's generally simple. The bad guys are really big. You can kind of avoid them. You can kind of jump over them. There's not a lot of obstacles. It's pretty easy to get through level one. But as you go on, each level gets more and more and more challenging. So, You might be here this morning and you might think, I've never cheated on my spouse. That is great, right? But what about about pornography? The the statistics on this are pretty hard to take in. Uh, Stats, this is from Barna Research. Um, I'm just going to list a few. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view porn on a regular basis, according to Barna. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76% actively search for porn. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. 87% have at some point, according to Barna. So it's one thing to like avoid, you know, a random hookup or cheating on your spouse, but it's much, much harder in the proliferation of sexual content online and the ease of access and the seeming anonymity to avoid that. And okay, like maybe pornography is not an issue for you and if that is true, praise God. But then, right, another level, like what what about your thought life? Or even maybe another level down, What about the even seemingly small ways that you might objectify people and size them up? Like the ways that our culture has taught us to value certain people more than other people because their body, their form, or their shape fits what the culture says is beautiful while someone else doesn't. 
this runs really, really deep. And I would think that for many of us, and maybe not all of us, but I would think a lot of us, there's a sense in which we can feel really stuck, hopeless, like our patterns of struggle in this area, they run so deep, they're like well-worn paths, and you know, like we see it habitually perhaps in our lives, and we may even know like neurologically that that is true, and it can feel like maybe there's no hope for change. Paul says, this is God's will for you, that you avoid sexual immorality. Verse 3, verse 4, positively, he says, it looks like learning to control your vessel. That's what it literally says in Greek, to control your vessel in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, this doesn't change the meaning all that much, but if Paul just wanted to say body, there's a word that he regularly uses to say body, soma. But he doesn't use that word. He uses the word skuos, which is normally translated vessel. And what some scholars think Paul is doing here, and I'm inclined to think that they're actually right, is that Paul is using this word vessel as a euphemism to speak of the male sexual organ. And here's why I point that out. Because our bodies are not things to be ashamed of. By implication of this text, our sexual organs, whether you are a man or a woman, they are not dirty. They are not shameful. Paul is saying there is a way to control your vessel in a way that is holy and honorable. There is a way of life in Jesus, a way of living with our bodies that is good and beautiful. And this is why throughout Paul's letters, as well as Jesus himself and many other places in the Bible, speak so directly about sex and how we use our bodies, because what we do with our bodies communicates our functional theology, meaning we live out and we communicate with our bodies what we believe about God, what we believe it means to be a human being, what we believe about Jesus and the gospel. And this is where you can start to see and understand why the Bible teaches this view of sex and why God cares about sex. If you look at the passage, again, a significant theme in our passage is holiness. The root word shows up six times. So it's twice in verse 13 that you would be blameless and holy in the presence of God. Uh, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones, it's used in verse 3, this is God's will that you should be sanctified, or you could translate that made holy. Verse 4, that each of you should learn how to control your vessel in a way that is holy. Verse 7, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Verse 8, therefore if anyone rejects this instruction, he does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his holy spirit. In the Bible, holy or holiness, it's used uh, with reference to all sorts of people and things that have been set apart from a general use to being in a special relationship with God and in his service. So Israel is called in the Old Testament God's holy people. Often things in connection with the tabernacle or the temple, the place where God dwells. 
uh, people or things uh, used in that space are called holy. So you read about in the Old Testament uh, a holy place, holy garments, a holy ark, all sorts of things like that. And theologian Sinclair Ferguson, I love this, he explains this biblical concept using the terms possession and purpose. Listen to what he writes. To sanctify or make holy means that God repossesses persons and things that have been devoted to other uses. Things that have been possessed for purposes other than his glory, he takes them into his own possession in order that they may reflect his own glory. Holiness, in other words, is a beautiful concept because to be holy means that God has taken someone or something and said, this is now mine. This belongs to me, and I want you to reflect my glory. Herman Bavinck writes this, That which has thus been made holy lives a life of its own, has a character of its own, and is set apart from the common life and laws of other people. Which is a nice old Dutch Reformed theologian way of saying, you're going to be weird. Like, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, if I can just speak directly to you and say, like, you're going to be weird, and that's okay. You should be weird. Our sexual ethic, our view of sexuality is going to be strange, and it's going to even be nonsensical to those who don't know God personally through Jesus. And whether you're married or single or wherever, whatever your state is in life, you have the opportunity and the calling to steward your sexuality in a way that testifies before the world, I belong to Jesus Christ. If you're married, the way you engage in sexual activity with your spouse, the way you seek to serve rather than just take, the way you honor the other person demonstrates, I belong to Jesus Christ. If you're single, whether you're an adult or you're young or you're a young adult, the way you submit your sexuality and your body and your desires and you give yourself to God, it demonstrates before a watching world, I belong to Jesus. And we shouldn't be surprised if the watching world thinks that we're weird or even is offended by the way that we live. I, many of you know I did college ministry for about eight years before coming here to Trinity. And there was a student that I remember who was in our ministry. He experienced same-sex attraction he was open about this struggle and he was seeking to follow Jesus faithfully and the call of Jesus on his life. And I remember one day he called me in tears because another student more loosely connected to our group had confronted him and said things to him as well as about him to other people in the group about he was judgmental towards her because she was in a relationship with another girl. And he hadn't said a word. And he hadn't done or said anything to her or to anyone else. But the mere fact that he was seeking to follow Jesus himself openly made her angry. It exposed her. And she attacked him. Because one of the most central things 
to the unbelieving worldview or to the, to the view of life that does not believe in Jesus is, I am my own. I belong to myself. This is my body. These are my desires. And I'm going to live in whatever way I want. But think about what we just confessed 30 minutes ago. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins. To live in passionate lust, Paul writes in verse 5, is to live like the pagans who do not know God. To know the living God is to live what Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And this is why it matters so much to God. So, what is our hope for change and our power to change? We read in verse 8 these sobering but also incredibly hopeful words. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. The very God who gives you himself, who gives the Holy Spirit, this is our hope. When I think about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, my mind goes to a movie from 2010 called The King's Speech, uh, starring Colin Firth. If you've never seen it, like you should watch it today. It is so fantastic. It's a historical drama that I actually recently learned is largely historically accurate about King George VI. It's a movie about a royal son who is called to fill a ta- fulfill a task that he feels completely helpless and hopeless to accomplish. At that time in world history, right, this is right before World War II, the ability to orate and to speak over the radio was incredibly important. It was important to all the nations, but especially leading Great Britain with the rise of orators such as Adolf Hitler and, uh, and Mussolini and the events leading up to World War II. But George, if you've seen the movie or you know the history, had a terrible, terrible stutter and could barely get through like a few sentences without being tripped up in his words. And so he is embarrassed, he is ashamed, he is angry, and he's very sad and hopeless, and he feels like he's being called to do something that he literally cannot do. And so desperate for help, his wife lines up a speech therapist named Lionel. And unlike the others who, you know, try and help Lionel is not just concerned with the mechanics of George's problem, his stutter. He's concerned with his whole person. He draws George out, or as he calls him, Bertie. He refuses to call him George or King George VI. He calls him his family name, Bertie. And he draws George out of himself and all of the baggage that he has from growing up a royal, of which George has just tons In Lionel's presence, Bertie processes the trauma of being abused as a child, which is where uh, his speech impediment first began. 
And it's a memory, it's a very moving scene if you remember. He can't even speak the words and so he has to sing to Lionel about what happened to him. And throughout the whole film, Lionel is with him, right alongside of him. Lionel reminds Bertie who he is and what kind of king he can be. And when Bertie has the most important radio address to give in his entire life, he has to give this address, this speech, live on the air, declaring war on Germany. There is this incredibly powerful scene where King George does what he thought was impossible. He gives the speech and he gets through it and he can do it because of the presence and the help and the encouragement of a wonderful counselor who comes alongside of him. And that is a picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit that God gives to every believer in Jesus. Every believer in Jesus is a, royal child, is a royal son or daughter of the king, and the Spirit helps us to do that which in our flesh we could not do. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John calls the Holy Spirit the parakletos, which is sometimes translated helper or comforter or advocate or the one who comes alongside. Jesus says, this one will remind you of everything I taught you. He will bear witness and testify about me. He points us to Jesus. He reminds us what Jesus has done. He takes the work of Jesus and he applies it to our lives and works it out in our lives. And this same Holy Spirit is the one that we read at the beginning of our service in Ezekiel 36 and 37, who cleanses us, who gives us new hearts, who empowers us to obey and gives us resurrection life. And this spirit, the Bible tells us, is at work in us if we are believers. You are a temple of the spirit and we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so let me close by inviting us not to turn away from God's will but to embrace the calling in this text and to receive the gifts that God has given us where the Spirit is at work. And we can think of, you know, lots of examples, the preaching of the Word, reading the Bible, um, the sacraments, prayer. But specifically, I want to invite you to receive the gift of the body of Christ. I know many of us are in discipleship groups, and this text is going to be coming up in a matter of weeks. Don't spurn the gift of the body. Don't try to go at it alone. Be honest. Ask for one another's help. Ask for prayer, for accountability. Be honest where you are. Extend grace to one another as you hear others share how they are doing in this area. If for whatever reason, you know, you're, you're not in a discipleship group. Let me invite you to speak to someone else in this church. You probably have other friends in this church. I can be the weird icebreaker of that situation. You can send an email or text. Hey, Nick said we should talk about this. Would you be willing to get together and chat? If for whatever reason you're new or you don't have anyone that you feel like you could possibly ever speak to about this, I would be more than happy to sit down, to process, to pray, to come alongside you. Send me an email. Shame and hopelessness grows in isolation. But when brought into the light with one another, the work of Jesus cleanses us. We experience his grace and his love and the peace of Christ afresh 
as we are honest, as we are reminded of the gospel, as we strengthen one another, as the Holy Spirit works in our midst. I want to invite us to a time of prayer. Now, I've said a lot this morning. There's a lot uh, that we've looked at and thought of in this text. So let me just invite you at this time to speak openly to the Lord about the things that are most on your heart. I'll give us a few moments to do that and then I'll close us in prayer.